Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. The greatest gift is a passion for reading, writer Elizabeth Hardwick once said. Today, we'll talk about the Scholastic Summer Reading Challenge. Our program seeks to do a 180 with the dreaded summer slide, turning it into the summer leap. How can we help parents and schools cultivate a passion for reading, especially when many children have little access to books, magazines, or other reading materials over the summer? Well, let's get some advice from experts. First, we have Pam Allen in the studio. Pam is the founder of Lit World and the co-author of Every Child, a Super Reader. Later, we'll talk by phone with two school principals, Kelly Seto of Virginia and Bruce Butler of Rhode Island. Kelly and Bruce head schools that get Title I funding. That is to say, federal funding that helps level the playing field for all children. We'll start with Pam. For kids going to school all across our country, um, summer can be very, very challenging. Historically and to this day, there isn't a lot that kids find really engaging or energizing about summer learning. Also, many school districts don't offer any kind of summer programs at all. And our families' parents still have to go to work. Um, it's a very difficult time for families. And this phenomenon known as the summer slide is that our children in even just that two months out of school are actually falling back in school. Research shows that it's not a small amount of time for a child whose brain is still developing. And so what we're really trying to do is build a, a movement around this idea of becoming a super reader 365 days a year And let's not have the summer slide anymore. Let's have the summer leap. Let's make the summer be one of the seasons in the year that becomes a big opportunity for children to become super readers. How can parents and teachers help in this effort? Yeah, I mean, for, for teachers, I'll say, take the two a little bit separately. One is to say for teachers, I think it's such an incredible opportunity to think differently about what summer school is. I think we tend to think of it as remediation. It's giving more kind of intervention to kids who might be um, falling behind. And instead to think about the summer opportunity as the deeper levels of engagement that our struggling or striving kids are actually missing all year long um, to really turn the corner for them, to give them a summer experience that's full of what we call serious joy. Um, and my uh, colleagues and I, Dr. Ernest Morell, my co-author on Every Child is Super Reader, and my Lit World team and I with Scholastic have created Lit Camp to meet that summer leap, to make the summer leap. Um, and so that's one thing that teachers can do is to uh, find out more about Lit Camp and where it can fit into your summer school program because it can lay into any summer school program. But for teachers, I think in general across the board, one of the things that we do in the summer summer Lit Camp is to say the read aloud matters, independent reading matters, um, high levels of engagement for a child around reading That all really matters, and that's going to be what we make central. And then for parents, 
we as, you know, uh, for myself as a parent and wanting to be connected to my child's school, thinking about us as a team, we're all making a super reader commitment. In my book, Every Child is Super Reader that I wrote with Ernest, we talk a lot about this idea of the dual commitment that we're all together in this. It's not blaming the parent, blaming the teacher. It's that we all have a commitment to our children as super readers. So as parents in the summer, we are offered the opportunity of longer days, um, of opportunities to build new rituals, to say, let's have a read aloud before breakfast. Let's have a read aloud late into the night. Let's offer our children the opportunity to linger with books they love and reread books they love, to actually not be um, thinking as much about um, what our children can't do as much as what they can do, making that summer leap at home by offering our children the opportunity to, if they want to take an extra 10 minutes to read the back of the cereal box, they should do that. Also having conversations with our children, taking the time in those later evenings um, to sit at the dinner table and ask our children, what are you thinking about? What do you want to know more about? In our book, we talk about this idea of curiosity and the power of that. And for parents to take the stance of wondering about your child and then matching those wonderings to books. You know, you're really interested in science. Let's get more science books at home. You're really interested in um, celebrities. Let's, let's make sure we buy some of those celebrity magazines and, 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 and page through them together. Um, making sure that our children aren't punished for reading, but that where reading is the asset, reading is the strength. Oftentimes parents will say to me, I told my kid if, you know, he wouldn't get his computer time or his online time or his game time if he didn't read a book. And I want to turn that around to make that reading the carrot, not the stick. And what about choice for children? You say getting science books, but maybe parents who are working all day, who don't have access to a lot of books, how do they get the right books into the hands of their children? You know, that, I mean, that's both a, an opportunity and also a challenge for parents. Um, in, in every book I've written for parents, I always include a lot of book lists because I know how hard it is to find just the right book. But I think we're better off to actually say, who is my kid right now? Um, who is my five-year-old? Who's my seven-year-old? Who's my 13-year-old? And try to match that child to the book because sometimes it's a very eccentric, quirky choice that will turn your child into a super reader. It's not always the book that won the medal or is everyone else's favorite book. And I'm always very interested in that, you know, why I'll say to somebody who tells me, oh, did you ever read that book by so-and-so? Oh, I loved this book when I was a kid. And I'll say, what was it about that book? And sometimes it's something as small as I just love the illustrations or I love the way you could like touch the page and feel a texture. And so to really be aware of our children, our children's tastes and interests and passions, if your child is some, someone who likes to cook with you, um, there are lots of books that you can find that have relationships with cooking or with, um, you know, even like the Tommy DiPaola books. He always talks about uh, grandmothers and spaghetti, you know, so even those kind of stretch connections are really good. And asking people for help uh, around this. Um, librarians, also going on, on online and looking on um, Scholastic also has great recommendations and um, Amazon, other websites where you can kind of say, if you like this, you might also like that. Um, the fact that you would start with your child's passions. You're a proponent of reading aloud, of course. Uh, do you have tips for parents on how to approach it? 
You know, the read aloud is a research proven best practice, both for schools and for the home. And children who are read aloud to every day perform up to a year better academically in school than those who are not read aloud to. So it's important. And also it, it's, it's something we can practice. We can actually get better at it. Um, and we can invite our children to be part of that with us. We can say to them, you know, I'm going to read aloud to you and like, let me know how my voices are. Or we can include our children. If you're reading a book like Frog and Toad, for example, you could say, you take the frog, I'll take the toad. And we could do the voices. But the read aloud itself, in terms of your question about where our voices fit in and how we know when to stop and ask a question, is to also invite those open-ended wonderings not so much for us to ask questions like, who is the main character? Or the questions we remember from growing up, like, what's the main idea? Because as parents especially, I really don't want you to take that role. I want you to ask questions you don't know the answers to when you're reading aloud. And let that come from your instincts. So for example, if I'm reading um, a book to my, my child, um, let's say it's uh, you know um, a book about friendship, and I, as I'm reading aloud, I'm sort of interested to know, does this idea of friendship match how it feels for you in school? That's a really good question to ask because number one, there's no wrong answer. Number two, it's a way for you to get to know your child a little bit better. And number three, it's an open-ended question. So the child feels invited to be part of that reading experience. I don't want you as a parent or as a teacher listening to kind of kill the book with your questions as you see your child leaning in to find out what happens next, just keep going. You don't have to, in order to do a good read aloud, you don't even have to ask any questions. You could even say like, throughout this read aloud, let's not even stop to pause because we're both so excited to see what happens. Sometimes it's actually better to read aloud again to say, this time let's go more slowly. There's some big ideas here and I wanna, I wanna find out what you're thinking. That sounds like solid advice. Uh, now you have two daughters. What books did you enjoy reading with them when they were little? Uh, oh my gosh, there were so many. My older daughter really loved the Mrs. Pigglewiggle series and she always found them very comforting. My younger daughter was a rabid, rabid Harry Potter fan to the point where um, someone once even said, I think Charlotte could get a PhD in Harry Potter. But I, I really had to learn how to think about the read aloud in a whole different way because I'd say to her, want to try a different book? And she'd say, nope, that's the one. Oh gosh. Wow. That's pretty neat. What can parents do to make reading together a joyful experience? I think there are a couple things. One is not to judge the way that we're reading aloud. In other words, um, we have this kind of quaint idea that it's always happening with a chapter book in bed, something like very almost old fashioned. But we're, we're on the run. You know, we're on the go as parents. You're very busy people um, and teachers are too. And I think there's a lot of ways to tuck a read aloud in. Um, you know, there some one of my favorite poets is Langston Hughes. And some of his poems are literally like four lines long. They're like micro perfection. And those poems are easy to read on the go. Um, so to think about reading different length books and types of text at different parts of the day. So that's, a you know, Langston Hughes, you could read aloud at breakfast before you go to work. It will take 30 seconds. Um, whereas a chapter book may require more time on the weekends or saying to your child, let's get up a little early and just snuggle together. You don't always have to do it all at the bedtime. Um, the other thing about, you know, really thinking about those rituals is 
making sure that you offer a diversity of genre, um, but also a diversity of culture, language, perspective, um, gender, race, really thinking about does the child, does do we as a family see ourselves in this read aloud? Are we looking at examples of texts that say something about our family or are maybe a mirror into us, but maybe are also a window into the world? So really opening up our horizons as as parents and as teachers and making sure that our read aloud collection represents the world. Uh, there's a beautiful book called Abuela by Arthur Doros. Um, and it's it was one of my daughter's favorite books. And when they got a little older and we were traveling around the city, uh, they they could, you know, really look to some of the things they had seen. And, um, you know, and, and Eloise Greenfield does that too and others. But really thinking about not only our local neighborhoods, but our world and our global neighborhoods too, that really does keep that read aloud really high on your child's list of what they want to do with you because it's not going to end just when they're done reading their bedtime books. Hmm, great. And last, you talked about your book with Ernest, Every Child a Super Reader. What kind of response are you seeing from teachers and parents around the country or wow. around the world? Yeah, it's been <laughs> amazing. So we, um, Ernest and I started, you know, speaking about Every Child a Super Reader just a, a few months ago. The book has just come out and it is a movement. It really is. Uh, people are asking us, how can we create a super reader home? How can we create a super reader community? How can we make a super reader school district? And um, asking and inviting this question of turning the work of teaching reading and becoming someone who cultivates student readers as from a deficit model to a strength-based model, looking at what children are capable of doing, and also about what we can make a commitment to each other. So I can say to my kid, I'm your parent. I'm making a commitment to you that you're going to become a super reader. Here's what I can do. Everybody can play a part in making a super reader commitment. And so what's been amazing is to see school districts um, coming out and saying, we're a super reader district. Having kids say to me, I want to be a super reader. I want to put that cape on and be part of this. What can I do? So everyone can play an active role. And it's just been thrilling. And I invite everybody listening to join us in, in really building this movement, changing the paradigm. No more summer slide. Let's make the summer leap. No more struggling reader. Let's be super readers. And in that way, I think deep within us, that idea of the depth of the child, the depth of that child's experience is they want to be heard. They want to be seen. They want to be believed in. And I think that's really what being a super reader is all about. Fantastic. Thank you, Pam. It's always such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Suzanne. Now we have Kelly Cito from Hampton, Virginia on the phone. Hi, Kelly. How are you? Wonderful. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. We're delighted that you're here with us. It is absolutely my pleasure. We are talking, as you know, about summer reading for kids and the phenomenon of the summer slide is a very real thing, but we're trying to do a 180 with it and and make it a summer leap. So how have you had success with this effort in your community? I was Title I coordinator in Virginia Beach City Public Schools, um, and I noticed this um, back in 2012, just in terms of the work that I was doing there with the Title I schools. And we had worked on um, 
the aspect of our core um, programming in the schools, ensuring that the core content areas were being taught, um, that we had comprehensive literacy, we had strong reading intervention. And even with that, we were noticing that we still were not reaching all children and getting the results in reading that we had expected to see by making all those different changes. And so I was attending a reading um, institute, and um, Dr. Richard Allington was one of the speakers. And um, he was he began speaking on something regarding summer, and it kind of made me perk up because I was like, hmm, he's making a really good point here. Have we looked at summer? Are we providing opportunities for our kids over the summer? Do they have access to books over the summer? And so I went back and I looked at um, our data with um, one of our departments to see if I could see, you know, are we, do we have what's considered the academic um, backslide during the summer? And it was prevalent in our community in Title I. And with that, I started to look at family engagement and started to research to see, you know, what programs have there been out there that have helped curb that summer backslide in reading? And so that is where it all pretty much started for me was identifying it, that we had it within that community. And knowing now that I am at Forest Elementary School, which is a Title I school in Hampton City, um, that was one of the first things that I asked for when I came on board was, do we have reading data from last spring so that when I got our fall data, I could do a comparison? And then I also asked for the reading data from the prior year so that during the summer I could see, you know, I didn't have to wait till fall to get that data. And recognizing that um, we have it at Forest, um, we knew that we needed to do something for our students. So um, we are working on programming um, to support our students um, over the summer, which will include an access to text components. What exactly do you mean by text components? Sounds a little dry, Kelly. Uh, well, um, it actually is very engaging for kids because they are actually going to get the opportunity to select the text um, that they are going to be reading over the summer. So what will take place is our students, we have kindergarten through fifth grade, they will um, get a list of book titles, nonfiction, fiction, that they can select to read over the summer. Not only will they have access to the text over the summer, but they will have opportunities over the summer to come to Forest and um, talk about their reading, um, have discourse with their peers around text. Um, we will do um, fun incentives for them where um, and contests. You know, kids are very competitive, so um, we want to make sure that one, you know, of course, we want them to be looking within and, and competing with themselves. How many books can I read this summer? But also, you know, they need those incentives over the summer. So we're going to start um, working with the public library who already has a summer reading challenge. And um, they already have incentives that they're going to use. So we're just going to host um, the celebrations for the students throughout the summer at our host site. So that's one aspect that we're doing this summer to provide um, access and opportunity. 
But we're also looking at um, summer programming where we're going to invite um, certain students uh, based upon different criteria to come to school and, and participate in a summer literacy camp. And um, it's going to look it's going to look different from traditional summer school. It's going to include social emotional um, and character building aspects. We're going to include fun things like brain gym activities. Um, and while at the same time, they will participate in fun literacy based um, activities. I love this. It's so creative and it makes me think of Donalyn Miller, the great literacy expert who often talks about the importance of reading communities. So having kids get get the opportunity to talk with each other about the books that they read, I think is so terrific. Yes. And the kids really do get excited about it because just as we do as adults, you know, with book clubs that we join and things along those lines, it's the same for the kids. They get to come in and you know, it's one thing to read a book, but when you read something and you get, and you know, someone else is either reading that same book, um, you get excited and you're like, oh, I got to share this part with you. It was wonderful. Or this part was so sad. Did it affect you this way? And kids love having those types of conversations, but they can't have those conversations if they do not have access to the quality text that will allow them to do so. One of the questions that, you know, I ask my colleagues and I've asked other districts is, um, have you asked, do all of your students have access to text year long? And I tell them, you know, if your answer is no, you have an equity gap. Um, absolutely does um, not reading over the summer, not having access to text um, contribute to the academic achievement gap. Absolutely. But we know that it's more prevalent in our areas of poverty. So we really do need to have that conversation and say, what can we do? What are those things that um, are out there that are those pockets of excellence? How much access do your students have to libraries throughout the year? So during the school year, um, our library is open every single day. And what I do in my building is every morning um, the library is open and students can go down to the library and check out um, additional books. Um, they go to the library once, at least once a week, but we wanted to make sure that if I read a book during the week that I got from the library and I want to get another book that I have that opportunity to do so. So our students know that our library is open every morning. Um, we allow our students to come in the building 20 minutes early to when, um, the, official time that they're supposed to enter the building and the library is open. And so for our school this year, um, during the summer, we are going to leave our library open um, during the same time that our programming is taking place. And if there are weeks that our program isn't taking place, the library will be open two days out of the week. Oh, gosh, that's that's great. I hope you are able to inspire schools and parents and teachers and principals around the country. It's just a great effort. And we wish you all the best with it this summer. Thank you so much. We are very excited to have this opportunity to provide this for our families and our families just having fun together. And then the opportunity at Forest for the kids to come together and just have fun around reading. That's what it's all about, having fun. Thank you, Kelly. Take good care. Thank you. You too. Continuing on our virtual road trip, 
Now we have Bruce Butler on the phone from Rhode Island. Welcome to our podcast, Bruce. Thank you so much for talking with us. No problem. Thank you for having me. Uh, We'd love to hear a little bit about your school and your students and how you incorporate the Summer Reading Challenge into your program. Sure. Um, Well, Maraville School is an elementary school um, here in North Providence, Rhode Island. It's a neighborhood school. Uh, It's a small school. We have the lowest population of all the schools in town. Uh, The school was built in 1920, so it's an old school with a lot of charm. We have grades K to five in our school. We have um, we do have a high poverty rate, high, fairly transient population in and out of the school, but we have a very warm, welcoming, nurturing, supportive environment here at Maraville School. That's wonderful. And do students have opportunities to go to the local library, or do you have a school library? How do how do they access books on their own? So, of course, we have a a school library that's available to the students every day. We have a librarian that's here uh, three days a week. And, of course, the town has the town library that's open for the students as well. And your students, how often do they get a chance to visit the, the public library? So what we've done is we've had the town library come into the school and sign up the students for the the town library, the card, the library card. And we also do online virtual tours here at the school of the town library so that the students are familiar with the town library as well. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, then I shouldn't be surprised that your school actually won an award in the 2015 Summer Reading Challenge. I know. It was wonderful. We were very excited to hear that. And what were some of the innovative things you did to earn this distinction? So what we did was our librarian is very enthusiastic and energetic and shares a great love of reading with the students. So we had the students log in during library class where it gave them an opportunity to practice reading and logging their minutes when the window was open for the challenge. And then, of course, uh, the students just took it from there. They continued their um, logging of the minutes all throughout the summer. Great. Uh, What works of fiction do your students gravitate towards? We see the kids at any given time with all of the Harry Potter collection. We even see, uh, I see a lot of Games of Thrones books in the school. (laughs) Bruce, your kids are really in the zeitgeist. Finally, what tips do you have for other principals who may be thinking of participating in the Scholastic Summer Reading Challenge? I would say absolutely sign the students up. It's a definitely a way to keep the students reading every day over the summer so that we don't see that regression that we typically uh, see when we come back to school in the fall. We did do some data collection in the spring where we looked at reading levels of the students, which, and then we, every fall we do a benchmark reading on the students. We did notice a difference in the number of students that were receiving um, Title I reading service this past fall, and where we're attributing that to our participation in the Summer Reading Challenge where those students continue to read all summer long. So that in itself is a real great reason for any principal to participate in the program. Thank you so very much for talking with us, Bruce. 
Oh, anytime. I appreciate it. And I look forward to doing this again. Well, congratulations on your great work. And that is a killer New England accent. I love it. I know. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> All I right. appreciate it. Have a great summer. You too. Take care. Thanks again to Pam, Kelly, and Bruce for being with us today. And thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic, where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possible. Special thanks to producer Megan K. Safer, sound mixer and editor Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberall. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time. 